on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. It's important for parents to know that uh, absent the village model, like in our nuclear family kind of thing that we're experimenting with, I would say unsuccessfully, they're expected to do everything for their children. And it's not possible. And so sometimes I'll just remind them, I'm like, you are doing a great job. And I, you know, I clearly know that you love your child, but it's not possible for you to do everything through this next stage. Fundamentally, it's just, we've never been able to do that. And so, you know, instilling the sense of trust and that there are other people who will actually be the the guides, um, particularly through adolescence. And that's the way it's always been. You know, in the village, it was maybe an uncle who could see what the parents couldn't see. Because as parents, you know, you're a father now too. Like, we're so close to our children that just like we can't step outside our own known world to see ourselves, we seldom can we see what is needed to move our children from a fundamental stage into the next. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate the space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. My guest today is Nikki Wilkes, a good friend and father of three who has spent many years working with youth of all ages. Five years ago, he co-founded Journeyman, an organization dedicated to guiding young men through nature-based rites of passage and honing their communities to be able to receive them properly afterwards. In our conversation, we touch upon a number of key themes, including why modern culture is currently failing our youth, why parents aren't meant to be everything to their kids, and why that's a good thing, and how we can truly make space for the genius of our boys. Enjoy. Nikki Wilkes, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Would you please begin by sharing a little of where you are right now? Yes. Um, I'm currently in my office basement of my home uh, here in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, this is the unceded territory of the Puyallup indigenous folks of our region here in the South Salish. So kind of the other side of this uh, little sea of which I think you are on the Northern side. Mm-hmm. What's your living situation there in the midst of this quarantine lockdown situation? Mm. Uh, it feels pretty cush. You know, I've, I've been sitting with our, our privilege and uh, the, the comforts that we still enjoy. And I can say that psycho spiritually, it feels like the twilight zone, but our physical space is, is pretty solid. I am enjoying like seeing our neighborhood a little bit more alive, like people just out and about and the fresh air seems to be, uh, seems to be inviting a lot of people out into the commons in a way that I haven't, hadn't seen yet. And so, uh, we have a park nearby and I'm just noticing way more people than I, I did when we first moved here. And this is a, this is a temporary space. So we, we have a dream to build a home in my hometown of Vashon Island, which is just across the way, just a ferry ride from us now. And so we're, uh, 
investing in that dream and, and hopefully in about a year we'll be back on the island and, and in our forever home. And you say we, and I'd love to hear about your family. Yes. So my fiance, Caitlin and I, uh, we've been together for about seven years now and bless her heart and patience for <laughs> being able to dream into our wedding for so long. So the two of us, uh, we've welcomed three children into the world. Uh, Maverick, our son, is about to be seven. And then Osa and Jude are twins, and they will be three uh, in a couple months as well. So the five of us, plus our little dog, Lumina, we're quite the, we're quite the crew now. And that's our, yeah, that's our little family in this journey for the time being. I'm actually trying to recall the first time we met, which... Uh, I believe, I mean, in person, I think it might have been a beloved a couple of years ago. But I'm also trying to think, what was our initial contact point? Um, you know, who reached out to who? And I wonder if you recall that. I do remember, actually. Um, I don't know how, how many crowdfunding campaigns you've done, but this was an early one, I think. And I, I believe it was when you and John were first uh, documenting some of your work at Tamara. And... I read the crowdfunding campaign and it just like struck a chord with me where I was really exploring love in my own life. And, uh, I think I was a crowdfunding supporter and I ended up getting this little deck of cards. I remember, uh, intimacy cards <laughs> or something, and I still have them. And I came across them recently and I was like, Oh my gosh, that's why I know Ian. And so that opened the thread. And I think we had some conversations over time. I've been tracking Charles Eisenstein's work for a long time and had done some mm. of his online courses and such as well. And so, uh, that was another weaving thread. I think I met him at Beloved that same year, and and that may have been the first time that we met in person. Well, I feel there's a number of ways in which we intersect, you know, in terms of uh, interests and purpose and uh, ways of seeing. And I mean, in particular, one area that you have a vast amount of experience, it seems, um, and still learning, no doubt, is in particular with youth and in particular with younger men. Mm-hmm. And I would love for you to offer just a little bit of that breadth of experience and roles that you have so the listeners get just a sense of how deeply you've you know, stepped into that, that realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Much of my work these days is centered around uh, exploring the intersection of masculinity and nature-based rites of passage and mentorship. And primarily that's in my role uh, of an organization I helped to co-found called Journeyman. It's wild to think about because we the organization hasn't existed very long, and uh, as as I look at my own life arc and, and how I've engaged in purposeful service, it's always kind of spiraled around these things. Uh, so I've spent uh, you know, over a decade coaching uh, youth sports and working with uh, mostly boys in that capacity, teaching PE, and realizing that there was something really important around embodiment, and yet feeling really stifled by the systems that I was working. Um, and eventually, uh, through my own deep healing work, I, I kind of came to this, this place, this deep knowing of, of, you know, what the intersection of all those things was going to be and, and look like. And so it was about five years ago when, uh, my good brother, Alex Craighead and I, we were sitting on Vashon Island and we were actually, uh, on a friend's land. Uh, he had just purchased you know, a piece of land and was really excited about stewarding this land. And we were facing the news of another youth suicide in our community and growing up in a small town, you know, I don't know if we have a statistically higher rate than anywhere else, but I can say that 
every time a young person, you know, faces a tragic um, situation, it creates ripples in the community. And, and this was like the fourth or fifth person who we knew personally who had chosen to end their own life. And we looked at each other and we were just like, now is the time. Uh, you know, we've been talking and dreaming about this for a long time, but it's very clear that the community needs this, this work. And that was essentially the moment. Wow. What was it like in your own experience growing up as a youth? Mm-hmm. Or what were the challenges? What were the, um, what was the missingness maybe that, you know, maybe it was something your soul longed for, but, but wasn't there growing up? Uh, for me, that, that question took a radical change, uh, like between my late childhood and then early adolescence. And if I could put it into like a word or a statement, it would be the feeling of belonging. So in short, like in, in childhood, I felt like I had this garden of life to experience. Uh, my parents were still together, uh, despite a pretty broken relationship. Um, but, uh, we lived in the house that like my dad built with his own hands. And so much of my life was centered around this feeling of belonging and the solidness that couldn't be taken away. Uh, around age 10, 11, they got divorced. I started learning about some of the intricacies of adult world. And a lot of my reality was based on a lie and a huge wound emerged from that. And, uh, I think that's really when I started to suppress and kind of go inward and, and more or less isolate myself emotionally and socially from, from intimacy and from the people who could have helped me. Um, and that's actually a thread that I've tracked a lot in our, in our youth work, uh, in particular in our, in our hometown of Vashon, where we do a lot of our work. So many young people and parents, I think are, are, are bought into this idea that this small kind of rural town is ideal for raising children. And there's so much truth to that. I mean, it's really a beautiful, safe place with abundant, you know, natural spaces and adults who care about children and are, are highly invested in that part of their life. Um, and it's those same qualities that is suffocating for a 14, 15 and 16 year old. And Mm -hmm. I work primarily with high school students as a teacher and a mentor now. And it's very evident to me how those same features that are so nice when you're eight and when you're parenting uh, an eight year old are actually the epitome of suffocating and annoying and, uh, stimulating this deep urge to get out, uh, when you're a young teen and mid kind of a mid adolescent. And that was my experience too. I mean, there was a very clear turning point when I wanted nothing more than to get the hell out of Dodge and experience life. Uh, and to stop having people think that they knew everything about me and to be able to create an identity that was just separate from this community that had uh, nurtured me through that early stage. Hmm. You said in another interview, uh, this phrase that identity precedes purpose. And I think there's something in that which uh, it speaks to a, a, like a recognition of of a certain time of a youth's life, and I think the time that you mentioned there, this idea that at a certain point it's actually about about getting out and in a way leaving behind all of the safe and the and the comforts or the the knownness you know that that um, tends to surround an idyllic youth or idyllic childhood, and I wonder this podcast really is looking at of course the myth the mythic layer of of you know many different uh, aspects of masculinity and the the experience of um, not just men but largely men and boys and and I wonder as you began to 
also, I believe, seek story and to, to seek myth, or maybe it found you. If you could speak to that as well, how did you begin to understand your own experience and the role of story within uh, this this particular moment in the lives of youth? Mm. Yeah, identity is such a huge, I, I would say, huge monument in in this exploration of of story and and human human beingness as opposed to human doingness. And yeah, for me, I think it was just, I had to get really lost. I had to, and I had to learn how to go really fast in the wrong direction. So for me, that was clear, like in my early twenties, especially I was all about like performance and, you know, doing better and more and achievement and all these things. And so I I was self-experimenting and going through like personal development stuff. And I was getting really good at stuff and I was really embodied. I was a competitive athlete. And so I had that piece going pretty well and I was able to accelerate in this direction that ultimately was just not the right direction. And, uh, it took me, exhaust me. It, it took me feeling totally physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausted to realize that continually going faster is not really that supportive of anything, especially if the direction is fundamentally wrong. Um, mm. And so as I unpack that a bit more, I think it's important to look at, you know, location, the idea of where we are and then where we started. And for me, that is where this idea of identity uh, kind of comes from and particularly identity preceding purpose. Um, one of my previous professional hats was as a college admissions counselor. And so I was working with high school students who were supposedly, you know, really sure about what they wanted to do when they grew up, whatever that means. They were choosing college majors and the school I was at working at too was about $60,000 a year. So, you know, you figure talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment in a career choice that most of them have never even tried. And I got to have so many of these conversations and interviews and ask some questions like, so how do you know you want to do this? And like, oh, well, my dad said it was a good idea or I really like movies. And to me, these are great starting places for exploring like mentorship, you know, partnerships maybe, but certainly not, you know, the amount of money that it would take to buy a house or something along those uh, lines. And so, you know, fast forward many years going through my own journey and and feeling so lost and essentially hitting a place of like, oh my gosh, I need to stop um, and ask these questions. Where am I right now? And where did I come from? And if I put a mythic lens on this, I would say that, you know, if we look at healthy cultures, both past and present, there's typically an origin story. There's this story of how it all began and how we got here. And these myths, uh, as I've come to learn, you know, create kind of the, the foundational fabric from which all the other stories emerge. And I didn't have an origin story, not even like culturally. I definitely didn't culturally, besides the Big Bang and some scientific explanation of everything. But I didn't have my own origin story. I didn't know like my dad and my mom's like really fundamental key uh, formative stories from their life beginning. And I think that really supported this lostness in myself and feeling like I was going in the wrong direction. So, so much of our work at Journeyman and, and in my mentoring piece is, is digging into this idea of who we think we are and particularly important at a life stage when there's still a, a, a malleability, there's this kind of plasticity of the mind and our belief systems uh, before the stubborn rigidity of adulthood fully sets in and to poke and prod and ask the right questions. So, you know, we don't have to unpack and peel back so many layers uh, 
later in life and say, oh my gosh, why did I do that for 20 years? You know, that's not who I am. And this doesn't feel resonant with my soul work. You know, perhaps one thread that we do share is I believe, you know, we both had some experience in uh, MKP or the Mankind Project and, and know mm-hmm. quite a few different men's work organizations. And one of my observations was that a lot of the men in that container in particular were like middle age. They were mm-hmm. 40, 50 ish and experiencing a crisis of their life. And for me, like, I, I just left that my first experience with it, super excited being like, Oh my gosh, if we can start asking some of these questions and making space for young folks to you know, do some of that prep work earlier on, we can save a lot of grief. And, uh, I believe redirect some of that energy at an earlier stage before it gets so cemented in place. Hmm. Wow. I love that idea of the origin story. I mean, both the you know cultural origin, but also the the personal origin and how it seems almost that unless uh, one is willing to step outside of, of that which is familiar, then it can be really hard to actually almost turn to see one's own story. And and often it actually takes the, the support and mentorship of others to give perspective, actually, so one could even see their own story. You know, something I've also encountered, you know, again and again. Um, and uh, the second thing I really appreciate is this sense that I believe this culture uh, kind of has this pressure of momentum, you know, that happens particularly with out of high school, you know, myself, I, I was encouraged strongly to go immediately into university after high school and uh, actually spent about two years basically, you know, wandering around kind of doing what I, I guess I thought I should be doing, uh, taking different electives and, you know, not really finding my the place where I felt most, uh, you know, purposeful, and and there was pressure and a little bit from my dad as well, saying, you know, how come you don't know what you need, you know, what you want to do, you got to know, you know, I was whatever tw- twenty one or something, and uh, and it was it wasn't until I actually crafted my own somewhat uh, somewhat conscious, somewhat unconscious initiation, where I went to Australia, I went as far away as I could possibly go <laughs> to essentially leave behind everything I knew. Uh, from this longing that just said, you know, go. And it wasn't until, again, I lasted about about eight months down there, you know, working odd jobs and and really discovering, you know, myself again from a different perspective that I recognized, oh, well, I can't outrun myself. You know, wherever I go, there I am. And uh, and, and when when I got home is when I somehow magically found the the actual thing that I wanted to do, which was communication and media studies, you know, which I've continued to do to this day. And I can't imagine that my trip, you know, without the trip that I would have necessarily found it with such clarity and with the sense that I got back and it was immediate. It was so obvious to me. Boom, this is where I need to be. Uh, and so there is something you're right about. There, there's something that the culture is failing youth that this isn't a process that they go through at the right moment and instead need a decade or more you know, of quote, doing it wrong or, or putting effort into something that they vaguely understand that they should be doing, you know, before they need to course correct. And, you know, I think in this culture, we often call that a midlife crisis, Mm -hmm. right? As if it's sort of a a natural occurring thing that, you know, isn't actually the consequence of not doing something far earlier. Mm -hmm. I love that. And your story to me, it just, it's so poetically, walks along the arc of a, of a rite of passage as, as we have come to know it. And as, as we've been kind of supported and creating a methodology around it of 
leaving the known, like stepping fully outside of this, you know, field, right? The fishbowl that we've lived for so long so that we can look back and actually see with contrast, oh, what's really going on over there? You know, and how am I, how am I over here such that I can understand how I am back in that, in that bowl? Um, Mm. I would love for you to walk us through how you uh, construct that archetypal journey for the youth in, in your programs. Mm. Yeah, that's a lovely question. This is this by far my favorite part of our work is Mm. tapping fully into the creative expression of designing ritual and really uh, long-term ceremony for not just the youth, but the community that surrounds young people. And it's so fun. And it feels like a, actually feels like an ancestral uh, buddy system of sorts. Like I'm like (laughs) tapping into things that I've never really been directly instructed in, but they're in our bones to some extent. And, and it feels really uh, good. It just feels good to, to engage in particularly the design part of the process. Um, so I will say that we have a, a pretty vast range of ages and stages we work with. We do like intro camps for like 10 year olds and, um, we do quite a bit of work with middle school age. So for us in the States, that's roughly like 11 to 13. Uh, but my favorite is working with high school age. So 15 and up, and then even young adulthood is, is a really sweet time, uh, particularly because of that, that, phenomena that you described of, of being pressured to do things. And yet quite a few of them are aware that they're not ready or they, that's not what they should be doing. And so the primary experience we have, uh, land-based or nature-based is called the quest. And at its core, it's a, it's a 10 day, uh, kind of all outdoor nature-based experience, uh, followed up with a year of mentorship and support. And so, both my co-founder and I had a, had a significant amount of youth development experience and had apprenticed and worked with some other rites of passage organizations that do like backpacking trips, you know, like super deep into the wilderness and they're amazing programs and, um, things that I will continue to refer people to, uh, if it's a right fit and there was something missing. And for us, both of us were raised in a tight community. And so for us, the, the, the missing link was the integration of the experience, which is to say, can the adults in this young person's village see them? Can they see the change that's happened and support it? Uh, do they have the tools to actually, you know, continue the journey? Because the word you used earlier was initiation. And that word strikes a lot of fear in, in our culture, particularly because of, uh, I would say, more toxic faux initiations that we hear of from fraternities and things like that. But that word is, is something that I... I want to reclaim because to me, it signals the beginning of something. It's initiating something else. And the initiation work is not done at the end of the backpacking trip. That's when it starts, right? That's when they first, uh, in our line of work, that's when they will glimpse a version of themselves that they haven't yet been able to. And so uh, our arc follows this kind of traditional three stages where stage one is leaving the known world. And for us, that is creating a vastly different community culture with these teen boys. We co-create through consensus, a set of agreements that guide our time together. We don't create rules. There's no top-down authority, and that's very strange for them. Um, and so all of a sudden they have agency and they're empowered to like, you know, tell us what they need and, and speak their truth. And that's a huge shift. 
but it's also mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I think we have a lot of buy-in with young people. None of our young folks are forced to do the, what we do. And, you know, that alone, I think, is a dramatic shift and departure away from other programs where, you know, kids are kind of coerced into doing it or their parents sign them up and they don't really want to do it. And uh, for us, it's 100% required that the young person chooses to be in it because otherwise it just doesn't work. We can't, mm-hmm. we can't will somebody to change themselves because it's convenient for us. And so that separation piece is, is also quite fun. We play a lot of games. We get them in their bodies uh, and create this kind of different world that we'll be living in for, for the 10 days. Uh, stage two is the threshold time. So this is when we cross into liminal space and uh, it's sometimes described as the world between worlds. In the, you know, there's an oft-used metaphor by many teachers, but particularly one of my favorites, Bill Plotkin. Um, He talks about the chrysalis and the caterpillar. And the liminal space would be like the goo time. It's when there's no structure. And if you were to look out, you know, look inside what's happening, it doesn't really look like anything's happening. And this is interesting when parents ask, well, what do you do out on the land the whole time? And I will do my best to describe what really happens But if you were to see it or have it explained, it wouldn't feel, you know, I don't think it really feels that powerful. Think about just sitting alone in nature for a day and not eating. What's so special about that? And when we strip away all of that, you know, all of that stimulus, in particular for young folks today who are just bombarded with with, uh, entertainment and amusement and dopamine hits from their phone and sweet candy shit and addictive food, when all that goes away, they, they get to sit with who they are. Uh, and that is a dramatically powerful experience for every single one of them who signs up. And that's kind of our primary threshold experience is that solo time in nature. Uh, and once they come back, we begin tending to their experience and their story. And, you know, we talked about the origin story. And so one of the things that we do for that experience is we, uh, we guide them to create uh, a claiming statement. And the claiming statement is a fundamental statement of who they are. It's an identity statement, in other words. And through a guided process of sitting in council and asking questions and probing and getting underneath what they're talking about, eventually they will self-generate. So they will write their own, uh, author their own claiming statement that is you know, kind of bringing wholeness to themselves in a way that they've never done. And usually this includes naming virtues, qualities, or values that they don't feel identified with, and yet they are the missing pieces for them to feel whole and solid in their lives. Um, and you know, from that point on, it's really supporting the integration. So, so much of our work then is preparing to go back into the culture in which most of that is going to reject them. Their friends mm-hmm. are not going to think anything has happened. They're going to be like, cool, you did a camping trip right on bro. And their parents are going to be inconvenienced because, uh, you know, an adult, a young adult human takes up more psycho-spiritual space in the home. All of a sudden, the adults in the family have to check their own boundaries and do their own work a little bit better. And so we prepare them for that. And it's hard. It's really hard to, to give tools to a young person to, to stand in their power and, and to be embodied and, and whole in a world that has known them to be small and known them to be fragmented and doesn't necessarily want them to, to grow. Uh, so that's kind of the arc, you know, in, in short. And, and we plan like through the, through the year afterward, we do a bunch of things together. We, we sit in ceremony, we, 
we do some retreats. Um, we stay connected, you know, through nowadays it's mostly through video means, but typically we gather at least once a month and continue that tending process so that they know that they have support. And even if they don't have the village at home or at school, they know that they have a village, you know, in our community. Hmm. Well, it's like, it's like walking them through a beautiful cosmology of, of, you know, this altered reality or, or village mindedness. Having sat with youth during this process for so many times, what do you see reveal itself again and again that perhaps you've been touched by in seeing these young men in this more, maybe more vulnerable, more exposed, you know, less um, protected, you know, by all of the distractions? What do you see emerge again and again that perhaps uh, the culture itself is generally unable to see? Mm. Oh man, this almost brings up tears for me. Um, boys just need permission to be. And in particular, much of the constructs around masculinity um, are so deeply wounding for, for children. And yet from such a young age, they are subtly conditioned to you know put their existence into a pretty narrow bandwidth of expression. And when we ask boys, like before we've begun anything that would even be construed as a lesson, and we don't really, we don't do lessons. We don't teach them how to be a man. We actually just do more unlearning than anything else. That's our model. When we look at what does it mean to be a nature-based organization, you know, we really try to unpack what the cultural conditioning is and let them create something that's authentic to themselves. And when we do that, more than anything, we find that boys and young men deeply want to be sensitive. They want to be compassionate and to know how to communicate their feelings and to have intimate relationships with, you know, people, but especially other boys and men, they want to be touched in loving ways and they want to play and they want to be given permission to essentially, I would say, be, be a human being, not just a boy. And it brings me sadness because it's such a common theme and uh, you know, there is so much conversation right now and in, in the, you know, and I love it in, in the intro to this podcast, you talk about this post me Too world that we're living in. There's so much sensitivity to that. And I would say even more pressure now on boys and men to be different than they are. And I'm not disagreeing with that. I know that we have our work to do and that's such a huge inspiration for what we do. And I know how that added pressure, that fundamental sense of wrongness is affecting boys right now, where they come into our experiences, whether that's the in-school mentoring work that we do or the camps, and they already feel like the loose, shaky identity of masculine boyhood, that's the only thing that they've really been able to hold on to. Now that's not allowed either. And they are vast, they're confused, they are angry, uh, and underneath all of that, I feel that they're deeply ashamed. And I think that's because they don't have that fundamental sense of identity. They don't have something that is solid underneath all of that. So that when they see someone hold up a sign that says the future is female, they don't think that that future includes them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like I said, like I, I don't disagree with, with, with the movement and the intentions underneath any of that messaging, I just know how it's affecting boys who don't yet have a psychological framework to feel anything but rejection with that messaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate your tears, brother. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
you know, it strikes me how necessary it is to have healthy models of masculinity of men and how so much of like what we, we see out there in the cultural conversation is this kind of don't be that. Um, and yet, again, very few examples of which to live into a kind of noble, life-serving masculinity. Um, in particular, I was really touched by Pat McCabe's interview, which you might have heard right prior on this podcast, Yeah, where she uh, she's an indigenous grandmother who really does speak to this topic in such a beautiful way. And you know, I can see you nodding your head there too. And I wonder, yeah, what 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 was touched in you when you heard her speak in that way? Where where what I was touched by as well is she she really affirmed this kind of um, way of seeing. In particular, you know, I really felt the younger men, even if it was quote you know an older man and or middle aged man listening, there was something about her the way she spoke was actually touching that like younger boy I felt that had never been talked to in this way, had never been seen in this way, and I wonder if you had the same feeling. Yeah. I'm nodding as, uh, yes. In short, I, I feel that, um, Pat's message, it feels like it's, it's, it's coming from a, a deeper place that's closer to, uh, that's closer to a way of seeing human relationships outside of the Western cultural, uh, mindset that I am so used to. And I feel like so many of us are so used to. Um, and you know, so much of our, I think so much of our trauma, our gender-based trauma in this life is, is fueled because of the origin stories of our culture and the wounding and the, the damage that's been done to get where we are right now. And in particular, listening to indigenous elders who have contact with, uh, older ways of seeing, you know, sex and gender and roles. Uh, to me, it's an important reminder that uh, it's not the only way. Uh, this, this, the way of seeing our identities shaped through gender is not the only way to do it. Um, and actually, on a, on a different episode, too, I, I was listening to, um, I think one of the quotes from you is that we're all born naked and everything else is drag uh, or Oh, that was day uh, day for morning altars. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Oh, I think he was quoting RuPaul. He's as well. quoting RuPaul. That it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I had heard that before, and and when it came up again, it just it kind of spoke to the same piece of, of conditioning, and and uh, I think when you know listening to Pat's episode and, and your conversation, it to me it's speaking to something below the conditioning, like there's something fundamental around uh, looking at how identity is shaped through these cultural lenses. And it takes a tremendous amount of courage, I will say, to even engage in these conversations. Um, I have been in, have, I'll say I have been in, in many situations in which I don't feel like there is a container. There's, mm-hmm. there's no container that can hold uh, the, the trauma and the, the, the delicacy of, of a lot of these things, except for an in-person, intimate, well-facilitated space. Uh, and there are organizations doing this work. And most of those conversations are happening on like Facebook. And that's not, uh, unfortunately that, to me, that's not going to, it's not going to provide the necessary container to, to really hold the depth of those conversations. What do you say to parents that are struggling with 
youth and young men around that age group in particular, you know, they hit adolescence and, and often they, there's a shift that happens um, where, again, they become more maybe detached or um, depressed or angry. And I see a lot of parents who struggle with that time, right? And, and from generally, you know, a good place that they're trying to be useful or trying to encourage. Uh, and yet there's a way that they just can't seem to get through. Um, there's something in the approach or maybe the ways that they're um, thinking what worked and now suddenly doesn't. You know, they feel a bit lost too. I'm curious, what do you say to parents that are struggling with that time in the lives of their sons? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to pull a line from uh, my my beloved and fiance, Caitlin, she's a, she's a midwife. And so it took us a while to realize that we're both midwives and we just facilitate different rites of passage. But, um, in particular, they they have a term in midwifery and and they're, you know, at at their core midwives are just making something that's not solid, feel solid. They just need security and they need to coach. And one of the things they say is this is all healthy and normal even when it's kind of questionable and it might not be. (laughs) And it's not to say that they would ignore like true medical needs, but Hey, it's healthy and normal. Just be reassuring. And one of the first things I would say is, okay, like this, this is, I want to say normal, not in the sense that it's, uh, you know, it needs to be, but it's common. And, uh, this is a sign of something that is ready. And so we use, you know, behavior as a, as a, essentially a signal and a message for, for something to be, brought into the system. Um, I refer a lot of folks out to some of our teachers that have done a lot of, uh, you know, really deep work in, in supporting boys and young men in particular. And so I'll, I'll reference books and things like that. Um, and I think one of the most powerful stories, again, getting back to myth that I rely on for my own guidance and sometimes will actually, uh, refer directly to is, the myth of Iron John. And mm. I'm wondering if, if you're familiar with that one. Oh yeah. Heavily. <laughs> yeah. I figured as much. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. to me, it's important for parents to know that, uh, absent the village model, like in our nuclear family kind of thing that we're experimenting with, I would say unsuccessfully, um, they're expected to do everything for their children and it's not possible. And so sometimes I'll just remind them, I'm like, you are doing a great job and I, you know, I clearly know that you love your child, but it's not possible for you to do everything through this next stage. Fundamentally, it's just, we've never been able to do that. And so, you know, instilling the sense of trust and that there are other people who will actually be the the guides, um, particularly through adolescence. And that's the way it's always been, you know, in the village, it was maybe an uncle who could see what the parents couldn't see. Because as parents, you know, you're a father now too. Like we're so close to our children that just like we can't step outside our own known world to see ourselves, we seldom can we see what is needed to move our children from a fundamental stage into the next. We're great at providing basic needs and that nurturing sense, all that stuff is I think well within our role. But in the village model, there were other people, there were grandparents, there were uncles, there were other people who could see what the parents couldn't because they were a little bit myopic. They were only nearsighted in, in that part of their uh, raising of children. And so uh, when I'm talking to parents, I will let them know that uh, there will be a time in which other people will have to, they will have to be invited into the, into the process. And that could be us through mentorship. It could be a teacher. It could be an extended family member. 
Um, there's so many roles uh, that can be explored, but it's challenging in our in our current social design because there's so much pressure on the nuclear family and so much pressure on parents to do everything that's needed for their children to make it all the way to adulthood, not just out of childhood, but literally all the way into legal adulthood. And that's, I believe it's impossible. And so I try to remind them that like, Hey, take a breath. Uh, we're going to do this together and you don't have to do it all. You're already doing probably too much. I love that. You know, I'm just thinking right now of the book, uh, long life, honey in the heart, I think from Martine Prechtel mm-hmm. and how that is such a beautiful, uh, rich, uh, articulation of a rite of passage being held, uh, by the, the, community of the village in I believe in Guatemala. And what's powerful about that understanding for me reading that book was that it wasn't like this this the initiation of the young men and the in this case I think the young women as well. It wasn't just like something that happened on the side, you know, while the rest of the adults are sort of business as usual doing their thing and oh yeah, we got to do this thing this weekend. That it was actually, <laughs> you know, uh, it was it was an entirely village harnessing all year round affair. You know that really employed everyone at every level to to pull this off, and how challenging it is to do something similar. Of course, at a time where, like you mentioned, so much of the reliance on the nuclear family to do everything means that there isn't really. I mean, most people, I would say, don't necessarily have a, 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 enough trusted adults within their sphere who they themselves have been subjected and lived through uh, any kind of initiatory you know experience to be able to hold something like this. And so, um, there's something about how, like, like you said, in, in a way, letting the parents off the hook to be like, look, like, this is not your function. You know, it's okay. It's not your function. Um, but what it does mean is that you have to do the labor of actually building the relationships with other adults who could be the ones to help pull it off, uh, you know, in this time when we, you know, so much of the village is, is just a distant memory. And so, yeah, that reframe to me is such a powerful, ne- necessary piece of the puzzle, you know, to, that it isn't, again, something on the side and then you go home. But it really does kind of ask for a, a complete regeneration of the village to pull it off. And, and what an amazing thing that that actually is the reason, or I should say, beyond simply, of course, the, the, the younger people in question, you know, certainly to, to go through something to, to craft their journey into adulthood. But the fact that it actually employs everyone else to do it uh, is also part of that like village magic. Mm, I love, I love that image to me. It's embedded in the language too to regenerate, you know, to me it's, it's uh, identifying that looking to the recent generation for a source of raw vital energy in the community is uh, quite obvious to me. I'm like, yeah, of course, right. That's where that comes from. And yet we don't have any, uh, I would say mainstream uh, example of placing youth in the center of the community and designing some part of our society around that. Like you said, it's one thing to kind of do it. And I feel like our work is kind of like doing it off to the side. And a lot of parents look at some of this as like, Oh, it's another summer camp and it's not. And we're very upfront. Like this is not a summer camp. If you were expecting just this kind of walk in the park and your kid's going to learn how to throw a Frisbee uh, it's not going to happen. They might learn how to throw a frisbee, but they might throw it at you when they get home. And we need to talk about what's going to happen when they get back. And that to me is, is where we're going. 
that like for us to dream the vision is so that we can remember that it's not just for the youth that these rituals and rites were actually about community renewal and there was a fundamental need of of tapping into the genius of young people and listening to them and what they see for the future because they're going to inherit it you know as as we talk i'm i'm noticing behind me there's this image that my friend odie painted of it's a reimagination of Mount Rushmore and it has indigenous elders. Uh, and it was kind of an ode to Standing Rock and the work that was done out there. And when I traveled to that place, I kept hearing that it was a youth led movement. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I kind of did. But when I got out there, it was very clear that there were, there was this social organization that was essentially empowering young people to drive a lot of that conversation forward. And I think it was hugely uncomfortable for a lot of, you know, adults and especially, you know, white folks and, and settler, those of us with a settler mindset to come into and be like, what do you mean a bunch of kids are telling us what to do? Like this feels hugely chaotic and unorganized. Um, and yet that's, that's hugely important for some of those more fundamental, uh, social activism, uh, social acts to take place. Um, What would you say, that's beautiful, I, I'm curious to know as well this idea that, you know, in a culture that actually centers not the kind of, uh, I don't know, aggrandizement or, or maybe the, I don't know, desires of, the, of youth, like there's, there's such a fundamental difference in a culture that elevates and, and sort of commodifies the unconscious desires of youth, whereas what you're talking about is a culture that centers the genius of youth. And I would love to know now, you know, with all of your years within that sphere and working with young people and young men in particular, like what is the genius that you see show up again and again? There's this conversation, you know, we've talked about, I think in a, in a previous call about this idea of them being truth tellers, actually, that there's something about how they mirror back the, maybe the hypocrisies or the, you know, the, the shadow in a way that is, is a kind of feedback loop to the system. You know, again, is that part of it? And I'm, I would love to hear from you. What are some of these, genius gifts that they do carry if a culture is willing to see them and employ them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. I, I would say, yeah, through behavior, young people are reflecting back to the culture, uh, everything that it needs to see. And it's, and I say through behavior because most young people don't feel empowered to use their voice without consequence or repercussion. And so it's in the behavior that we see, uh, them, you know, play out these dramas, these embedded, you know, parts of our stories, memes, for better words, like memes are, memes are, uh, you know, the youth's way of, of creating their own subculture and transmitting meaning through their community. And uh, if I could identify the genius in all of that, I would say that, hmm, to me, the, the, the collective genius that young people are bringing forth right now is about inviting the adults in the village to go back and address the things that they have long, long, long ignored in their own development. And to, to those of us with young children, I think those invitations look like come and play with me and be present. And especially for the dads, like listening and for those of us who are fathers, like looking at the father wound, and recognizing how industrial culture like robbed us from participating in the beauty of, of participating in, in the family and in the village. And 
finding ways to just show up in those moments. You know, through each stage, I think there are there are invitations for us to go back and perhaps address the trauma of losing aspects of our innocence and childhood. But more than anything, uh, I, I see the function of, of young people in the cultural context right now to be about reflecting back what needs to be seen. And unfortunately, you know, so much of, of what I hear and feel from the adults that I work with and greater, like more, more widespread socially is that it's really inconvenient. It's really inconvenient to have Mm -hmm. these things reflected back. And, uh, I'll I'll share one example. Uh, I was recently, uh, speaking with a, a colleague who public speaker and has written books on youth development, very, um, I would say very experienced person. And she brought up the idea of uh, young people creating pornography. And, you know, it's illegal for one, they're under 18 and, and they have these tools, right? They have like, they have really high quality video making equipment. They can use their smartphone. They know how to edit now. And young people are in their eyes making really tasteful uh, expressions of their sexuality using tools that they're given in the culture, right? They're allowed to use these things, but they're just not allowed to use them in this way. And there are young people who are pushing back and they're like, this is my body. Like, this is my body. You, you know, these tools exist. Like, how how are you going to say that I can't do this? And I have had to sit with that because there's this fundamental part of myself that's like, oh, God, yeah, we can't have like, you know, 14 year olds making a bunch of porn. But if like, there's so many nuances to this piece. But to me, it's just an example of young people kind of looking back at the adults and being like, what the hell do you expect us to do? Like, honestly, what Mm -hmm. do you expect us to do? You've given us this situation. Do you really think we're not going to use what's right in front of us uh, in a way that feels right? Even if it's inconvenient for the adults and really uncomfortable to sit with, Oh my God, why does my 15 year old daughter want to do this? What have I done wrong? So that's just one example. And there's many more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you just, you made me think of a, you know, one example of another community village uh, way is Tamara, of which I think you might've named earlier, this community in Portugal, of which they've really centered this conversation around love and sexuality and all the rest. And um, from my time there and from interviews and and research, you know, we hear some of the stories about how they also, um, in a way, you know, give space for youth uh, at most ages to to ask these questions and to be in the conversation rather than banish it, you know, and say, how could you, or oh, that's wrong. And um, what that does, I mean, it does create a sense that the the adults are able to hold um, a level of, you know, of complexity, of nuance, you know, without shaming, without judging, but also to give orientation still. Like that's, that's I think, a key piece as well, that because they have done the work themselves, Right, like that's such a key piece of it. And uh, the second thing is that you know we were interviewing one of the youth. Uh, uh, her name is Naila. She's uh, about twenty-one now. We were interviewing her about eighteen, and uh, she was just talking about her parents actually, who um, they're fairly uh, uh, big leaders in the community. You know, one one's the co-creator of the Global Love School, Benjamin, who I interviewed on uh, I think episode five maybe, and uh, she was just saying how you know she, the way she spoke of her parents was such an authentic loving appreciation then what she said was you know my parents they never tried to be perfect and they never uh put their unconsciousness uh on her like the work that they weren't doing they didn't put it on her but what they did was work it out with other adults transparently with her able to see them doing the work 
right? And what a difference that makes because, again, I think so many parents try to be, again, they try to get keep it all together and think that, yeah, like, you know, to show vulnerability is is too difficult for them to take, you know, I certainly, you know, at a certain age, perhaps, but as particularly, I think youth, you know, they have really great bullshit meters. Yes. Right. And, and if there's a hypocrisy, if there's a, a hidden hiddenness that it's not being announced, you know, and then they themselves tend to turn off or turn away or say, you know, F this is because they're themselves confronted with this, you know, kind of unwillingness to be transparent. And so why would they do, why would they go first, you know, kind of thing? Totally. It's like, it's quite a lot to ask a youth, you know, if an adult is not willing to do it themselves. So I do feel there's a whole culture about um, a kind of, I don't know, skillfulness, transparency, vulnerability that the adults are actually being invited into with youth who are kind of willing to mirror that back to them. Mm -hmm. I love that. And it comes back to the, you know, modeling in our mentor training, uh, experience, we, we propose a model that is differentiating between a push and pull. And I feel like culturally we, we try to push youth into things and yet it's so different. You know, I, I like to use the analogy of standing on the edge of like a, like a, a cliff that leads into a pool. Right. And there's like, you know, water 10 or 20 feet down and someone was kind of afraid of heights and they were sitting next to you and they're like, jump, jump, come on, jump. It's the right thing to do. You're going to love it. And if that person jumps first and is in the water and is like, Hey, come join me. It's a very different feeling of being invited or pulled into something or led by example. Um, and I love that. I mean, I love the idea and, and I so appreciate and agree with the sense that young people are highly attuned to bullshit and they can sense inauthenticity in a way that, um, I think, differentiates a mentor from a teacher in, in a sense. And that's, you know, I, I am actually a, I am a teacher right now. I, I work in a, in a public school and I love that role. And I think one of the reasons why I've been able to create really meaningful relationships with students in a short amount of time is because I, I practice a level of transparency in my relationship that is very uncommon. And I find that, you know, for me in, in delivering content, like, that transmission of that content is, you know, exponentially easier once we have a, a, a clear trusting relationship between us. I don't pretend like I know it all. I'm very vulnerable when I don't know. I bring my emotions to the table. You know, we do check-ins with each other. Um, and these things, whether we're a parent or a teacher or a mentor or anything, uh, I feel like are kind of the fundamental relationship tools that lead to, you know, all that is good and, and particularly growth in young people. I, I'm constantly sitting with my own question of what is the edge of how much I'm willing to share with our children and with my mentees. I'm constantly tracking that, that line and maybe I go too far, but uh, for me, especially as a parent, and I would encourage, you know, listeners who are parents to think about this, like how much do I withhold from my children and the young people in my lives for my own comfort? And how much is really about their safety? And if it's mostly about your comfort, you know, recognizing that withholding that part of your own story or whatever work you're going through, um, that whether you like it or not, the young person can feel it. They are fundamentally designed to be empathic and particularly with our own children. I mean, they can feel what you are feeling, even if you are saying something totally different. And so, um, you know, I recently, only a couple of years ago, learned what it meant, uh, what gaslighting meant. And I had to go back in my own experience and really sit with like, 
as a, as a child, I was consistently told that things were different than what I was feeling. Um, Charles actually speaks to this too, of, of being a child and having this fundamental sense of kind of wrongness that everything was really different than what he was being told and experiencing. And I believe that's a really common feeling. And as adults, the, I would say the better we can bring that affirmation that what young people are feeling is real and true, uh, the better they're going to be able to develop and, and learn to listen and use those same tools, their intuitive voice and their sensitivity to things like climate collapse and grief and things that mm -hmm. I think adults have to kind of relearn to sensitize themselves to. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's powerful. We are in a very particular moment here with COVID-19 and you know much of the world under lockdown and all the rest. And, and certainly there's likely a lot of parents uh, with youth, in particular young men in their homes and to varying degrees of you know space to, to get away or not. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of this is a, quite a pressure cooker for, for a lot of parents and a lot of youth. And I'm curious, what orientation might you give to parents uh, with youth, particularly young men, you know, in this time that might be helpful? Like perhaps there's, you know, practices or skills that could be brought that could alleviate, you know, some of that pressure or, or even create new ways of making connection during this time. Mm. Ah, thank you. Such a, such an alive question for us uh, as an organization, as a, as a people right now. And I just really want to acknowledge what parents are feeling right now from conversations I've had with other parents and, and such. There's a lot of pressure right now. Like parents are being asked to homeschool and teach and they've never done that. And they're just like overwhelmed and getting a bajillion emails from teachers and they're expected to facilitate lessons and things that they probably didn't even listen to in high school. Uh, <laughs> and it's hard. So just want to acknowledge that and, you know, probably just maybe release some of that pressure that you have to do it all and do it right. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, youth and teens in particular, this is not gendered so at, so much in this particular case, but um, one of the authors that I uh, more recently have come to really appreciate, his name is Dr. Warren Farrell. He wrote a book called The Boy Crisis that uh, I highly recommend for folks, whether they have, you know, male children or not. And one of the things that he recommends is so simple, but it's just a family dinner night. And I find that, you know, in our, in our, in our family life, even with small children, having a consistent ritual around dinner is, is a cornerstone for us to relate to each other. And as children get older, particularly um, into adolescence, for these to be facilitated conversations uh, is a, is a really beautiful opportunity. And especially with older children to have some rotating duties where like there's a rotation of who's facilitating or, or giving the theme and to have a set of, of protocols. Like you and I are familiar with the way of counsel and there's a lot of resources on how to facilitate circle discussions. Um, and Dr. You know, Dr. Farrell in his book has a great guide. I think his website even has a how to facilitate family dinner night um, in a way that feels equitable and it's not just lecturing the kid to do the right thing. It's really a space for the family to connect. Um, and it could be once a week, uh, it could be more, but I think starting with once a week is a great thing uh, and just kind of see how that goes. I would also emphasize the importance of embodiment. A lot of the uh, literature that I've read suggests that in particular boys are uh, more physiologically designed for, um, 
physical interaction and learning. And, and they need, you know, if you look at a classroom, especially with young children, the boys tend to fidget a bit more. They just need to move their bodies and, um, school, albeit even though recess is like continually taken away and there's less and less physical activity time school for a lot of boys was providing the last sliver of regular physical activity in their lives. And, uh, now that that's gone for a lot of, uh, youth, there's very little structural support and rhythm around physical activity or just embodiment. And so any, any way to get, uh, youth in, in their body, right. And this could be as simple as going on a walk together, um, or having some sort of, uh, rhythm or routine that in, allows them to get present in their body and out of their head, I feel like to be so important. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. I think anytime you can do it together, the better, uh, it doesn't have to be competitive. You know, I don't. I don't often recommend like the competitive sports side of it, even though that's my own background, I would say the less competitive, especially in a family, the better. So just doing things that get, get, get you breathing, that get you sweating. Um, anything that can be done like that is going to be hugely supportive for well-being during this time. Um, and to create some rhythm around it, make it a ritual, make it fun. And, you know, obviously these things benefit us too. Like there's, <laughs> there's such a, I think there's such a need for us to, to feel that vitality in our physical system that whether it's doing it for the kids or doing it for yourself, uh, we'll all kind of feel that, oh my gosh, it feels so nice to get in my body during this time and off of Zoom. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. Well, I think we're almost complete now. And, you know, I'd love to just offer or maybe reflect the image that I felt, you know, was really in this conversation. It seems that you know, we are contending with a culture that has fundamentally been about grooming or conditioning youth for, you know, the modern industrial system. In so many ways, you know, I think we're awakening, awakening to the consequence of that, uh, whether it's the, it's the incomplete soul life of youth and, and, you know, the crisis that comes from both, you know, personally, but then also, of course, collectively. Like, I mean, you know, sometimes I really have this kind of clarity through, understanding that, you know, if the way that we've been doing things or the way that modern culture has been doing things, if it was working, you know, quotations, we wouldn't be on the precipice of a biospheric collapse and, you know, all of the rest. Like, so clearly, you know, if you want to, any metric you want to look at, you know, something's awry. And I think if we take it all the way back down to the the structure of the culture or, or the structure of modernity, you know, there's something really significant where, the youth are properly placed in the center, you know? And, and again, I see it not so much as the center as in they're the quote, most important in a way, you know what I mean? Like a hierarchy, but more like um, in terms of a, 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 a structure of relating, I think of the beauty of a flower, right? That the youth are in the center. And I've heard some indigenous people speak about this, you know, our children, they're, they're like the, the bloom, you know, in the middle of our community and around them are the grandparents, that, you know, become useful far beyond their own, you know, kind of production years uh, in a system. But but the, the rightful place of the grandparents often is around the children, right? So the parents get a much-deserved support, right? So they're not contending with trying to be everything, you know, in the nuclear bubble, as so many are. Uh, and then around them is the, you know, the, say the rest of the, of the adults that play a vital role in just, you know, keeping an eye on things and, and being productive, you know, where it counts, um, creating safety, you know, that and, and this really beautiful image of this 
a flower comes to me um, that is just so much more aligned with life, it feels. You know, and so I see, I see all of the work that you're doing, you know, the things that we're speaking to, it's, or it's really asking us to fundamentally restructure uh, the culture in a way that is much more attuned to life. And wherever one might fall in that, you know, whatever petal one might be in that flower, that we're all playing a piece of orchestrating this shift. And again, I just want to honor you for really giving so much of your days and care and and attentiveness to youth and particularly young men who who so often are seen as the bad ones you know or the the fundamentally flawed uh which is such a uh, painful uh, way to 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 grow up and to form one's identity you know when when you have no place to really live out your gifts <clears throat> thank you for that image ian um and anything you want to leave us with now before we close said so, Happy to turn it over. Yeah. That image is so beautiful and poetic. Um, there is a, there's another invitation that I have, which is, you know, we, we might go into our own psyches and imagination and, uh, you know, picture coming across a, a teen boy on the street who's in a hoodie, you know, maybe kind of masking his face, looking down and, and, uh, we might ask ourselves how we would feel with that person walking up close to us, if we had to walk past that person on the street, uh, would we feel fear? Would we feel judgment? Um, what comes up for us as we imagine that interaction. And if it's anything but uh, curious, you know, desire for love and support, like for us to go into that a bit and say, why, why do we look at particularly boys like teen boys? Why do we, why do we do that? And how is that impacting them? And, and being honest with ourselves that they can feel that judgment. Like they can feel uh, what it's like to be seen like that because that's probably why they're hiding their face. That's probably why they're looking down. That's probably why they're wearing a hoodie. Um, mm. And so that's my hope and, and kind of prayer and invitation for us is to consider how how we uh, continue to, to shape that that piece that we're working to, to unpack and change. Um, if we can strike up conversations and and just be in community with, with, with our youth. Uh, I feel tremendously hopeful about our future and so much of that image of the flower of placing youth in the center. It really starts inside. It's to me, it starts with looking at our own inner child and inner youth and engaging in meaningful relationship with that part of ourselves. And that could be, you know, doing deep work in nature. It could be taking a walk and just, going back into some of our formative memories and asking how we identify with our youth, how we identify with our, our inner child and, and what has shaped those own judgments and to work on that and, and remember that that will inform and to a large extent that will uh, guide the interactions that we have in the external world. Mm -hmm. So thank you for this opportunity. Uh, it's really an honor to be, to be in conversation with you and to contribute to this exploration of these topics. Um, if, if it's okay, I'd love to share another invitation for folks who might be interested. Please. It, part of our exploration at Journeyman is asking the question, how can we adapt to this current circumstance and also, you know, perhaps create a platform that will still be relevant after, after, I don't want to say after it always feels after the COVID, but um, as we transition into some sense of normality and the dream 
at this point is uh, a digital community and we're calling it the village and uh, the, the primary offering for young men and boys is, is called band of brothers. And so we'll be forming uh, these digital groups of probably six to 10 uh, boys, uh, some guides uh, from our organization. And we've structured this uh, six week, I don't want to call it a course because it has, it reeks of academia. And as I'm learning from the youth, they don't, they don't want that. Uh, but it's really an online immersive experience for boys to, to drop into some of this work in a way that's accessible for them. And so since we began, we've really been sitting with the question of how can we meet youth where they are? They're online. They know how to use social media really well. How can we, uh, you know, utilize these tools and use it for the development of their character in a way that's, that's uh, you know, both fun and, and also moving everyone forward? Um, but in addition to the Band of Brothers course for boys, we're going to do some, you know, parent workshops as well. And we'll have some of our favorite authors like Dr. Arna Rubenstein from Australia and some other youth development folks come on for special sessions to help parents during this time. So we're excited about that. And these are things that we just feel like are, are kind of part of our greater gift to, to what's going on right now. Beautiful. And where can they find more information on these offerings? Yeah. So our website is journeymen.us. And uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, I think it's facebook.com slash journeymen. Instagram is just at journeymen. And as soon as we have dates and stuff, we'll just, we'll put out the word on, on these channels uh, and we'll make sure that anyone who's interested has the info they need. Beautiful. And I'd be remiss to not have a moment just to give a shout out to the Rad Dad Collective, mm-hmm. of which uh, you and I are part of uh, Fatherhood Online Council as well. And uh, if there's other fathers out there who do want to connect with other fathers uh, on these topics of, you know, particularly younger children in this time, uh, check out Rad Dad Collective on, on Facebook and online and uh, join the group there too. Yeah. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you, brother. It's an honor. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-a-n-m-a-c-k to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.